0: Revelation chapter eight treats us to the opening of the seventh seal. Uh, And this is different in many respects than the previous six seals that were broken. And we'll talk about that. So we're picking back up with this sequence that was introduced in chapter six, where the worthy lamb is opening each of these seals or breaking these seals, which will open the great scroll, the scroll of destiny. And John took us on a interlude in chapter seven. Uh, and now we've returned back in chapter eight to this opening of these seven seals. Now with the opening of the seventh seal, unlike the previous six, uh, where really we're mostly given descriptors, or as I mentioned earlier, kind of high-altitude or low-resolution views of, of those six seals, will now uh, drill down much more deeply and learn many details. So the seventh seal is different in this way. Uh, it's also different because of the imagery that's reflected in the breakage of this seventh seal because now this allows for the scroll to be entirely opened. And so now it can be viewed and read and the words that are contained inside can take effect. So as we enter chapter eight and begin to appreciate the contents of this scroll and the opening of the seventh seal, we begin a new sequence uh, over the next several chapters that follow a very similar pattern to the one that we had just traveled. We again go through the sequence of seven things that are that are followed in a linear fashion. Um, before it was seven seals. Uh, before that, in chapters two and three, it was seven cities. Now we're going to talk about seven angels who are introduced to us in chapter 8. We discussed the first four of these angels in chapter 8 and then two more in chapter 9. So it's chapters 8 and 9. Then, in a similar way, as, as we get to the seventh angel, John heightens our suspense as he has been known to do previously. And he requires us to follow him on a new digression, which is chapter ten. And then, after that takes place, we get into the middle of chapter eleven, and we meet the seventh angel. For a brief overview, then, of chapter eight, before we go to verse one, we are introduced again uh, to the lamb, and and in verse 1 it says, and when he had opened the seventh seal. So he, in this case, is that same lamb that John helped us visualize in Revelation chapter 5. And then the first four of the seven angels are introduced. Uh, and that takes us up to verse 12. And then verse 13 has a kind of a transition statement. Uh, that we'll talk about when we come to the end of the chapter. So a full reading of of verse 1 goes like this. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So we'll talk about those details. It would seem, by the way, that we could jump straight from verse 2 to verse 6 when we then talk about these seven angels. But true to form, John gives us something else before we turn to these seven angels in verses 3, 4, and 5. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. So coming back then to verse 1, where the Lamb opens the seventh seal, we find that once this has happened that silence follows and that that silence is for about the space of a half an hour this silence is the context for what occurs between here and verse 6 and and really up up through verse 6 and so that's the context is that it's a, it's a period of mounting preparation for what is about to be unleashed in verse 7. There is scriptural precedent for silence of this sort. For example, the Lord says this in Doctrine and Covenants section 38, verses 8 and also 11 through 12. But the day soon cometh that ye shall see me, and know that I am. For the veil of darkness shall soon be rent, and he that is Not purified shall not abide the day, for all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of all the hosts of heaven, which causeth silence to reign, and all eternity is pained, and the angels are waiting for the great command to reap down the earth to gather the tares that they may be burned." So there's a reference there to silence and there's a lot of imagery that um, re- Revelation helps us to, to kind of fill out in our minds. Well, there's also Old Testament precedent for this concept of silence that precedes the Lord's arrival or precedes the Lord's judgment. Uh, here's one in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, where it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What follows that in Habakkuk is a description of the Lord moving in anger and glory against wickedness. And that's, that's quoting uh, Richard Draper's book, uh, the opening of the seven seals. Now, there's also precedent for this in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent. O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So we have two images there. Uh, one is of, of, of a silence, and the other is of the Lord leaving or being raised up out of his holy habitation. So there is something very similar going on here. It's also interesting to me that it says, Be silent, O all flesh. We'll have other references to the world in general that. Um, that, that seems to be related. What we'll see in the verses following this is that this silence, uh, to use a musical term, is in crescendo. Now, uh, crescendo uh, means that that silence gets louder. But in this case, there's an anticipation and there's a preparation that's happening during this silence. And so, in that sense, that that anticipation is is in crescendo. We're told that it's a half an hour of near silence. Now, would that be a half an hour uh, according to the Lord's time, since we're looking according to his time frame? Well, maybe so. And if you kind of do the math and look at it that way, then then maybe it's something like 21 years. And that's what Elder McConkie suggested. It's helpful, however, to know, too, that that when it says half an hour, the Greek word behind half is hos hos and and that just means approximately or nearly so nearly an hour so i i think to to try and interpret this in too much of a quantitative fashion uh, might be to have our ladder up the wrong wall uh the important point seems to be that this half hour of silence will be some perhaps some sort of a latent period because we've just witnessed the destruction incident to the end of the sixth seal, and now there is kind of a latent period where maybe there will be some semblance of normalcy in the world. Uh, This is a space that's granted, as Alma said, unto mankind to repent, if they will do so before the next phase begins. Uh, There's something really parallel to this in the Book of Mormon after Samuel the Lamanite Um, prophesies many signs incident to the Lord's coming. And those signs occur um, and then there's this latent period that corresponds with the time that that the Savior dwelt in mortality. And so it wasn't until uh, quite a lot later after he died and was resurrected that he actually appeared in the prophesied way. So there could be something similar happening here. There's a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 133, verses 38 through 40, that says, The servants of God shall go forth, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, calling upon the name of the Lord day and night, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. So it sounds a bit like Ezekiel there, where the Lord would come down. He would rend the heavens and leave his throne and come down. Now, the trigger for this, however, in this uh, two, in these three verses in the Doctrine and Covenants is that it is the prayers of the servants of God and that they will be calling upon him day and night asking him to do this thing, to rend the heavens and come down. This corresponds then with what we encounter in verses 3, 4, and 5. So I'll come back to verse 2 as it's when we start to move into verse 6. But in verses 3, 4, and 5, we find that these prayers of the saints are, are referenced in a, in, a, uh, in, in a curious way, and, and this has a very similar spirit to it. We, we have the, the, the righteous saints who are asking the Lord to leave his habitation and to effect these prophesied uh, and cleansing calamities. And so verses 3 through 5 read like this, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. A censer is something that would hold incense. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. I'll stop there. This image of of incense rising up out of a censer and reaching God and and having it um, be associated with an altar creates imagery that should be familiar to us and also thought-provoking in the sense that our prayers can leave our presence where we're for lack of a better word, stuck in mortality. Uh, We we are stuck in our estranged state. We're wanderers in a strange land, as Alma said. That's where we are, but it's possible for our prayers to rise like incense and to move into a new space, a space that we can't currently go to. Uh, Those prayers can then penetrate the veil that separates us from God's presence, and they can reach his divine ears. And that seems to be the imagery, that seems to be what's happening here, and it also gives us great insight into what our prayers do and, and, and the path that they can travel when we offer them to the Lord in sincerity of heart. In this case, we find that there's an advocate of sorts for our prayers. And we know that we pray to the Father through the advocacy of his Son. But we're reading about another angel in verse 3. It could possibly be Adam. Uh, And it's interesting to note that in Revelation chapter 5, we talk about uh, angels. And also in Revelation chapter 7, which we just were in, we talked about uh, a different group of angels that would that would um, uh, cause it, cause a hot, destructive wind to come upon the earth. But then another angel is mentioned, so it happens in, in those two places. And here it's happening again, because we're introduced to seven angels in verse 2, but yet then another angel is introduced to us in, in verse 3. And this could be Adam, or it could be Gabriel, uh, Noah, because um, th- there is... Um, Certainly a type of destruction here that is a type of pending destruction here that mirrors uh, what Noah experienced. Uh, We don't know the identity of of that angel, but he's acting somewhat as an advocate here uh, who seems to be representing all mankind or at least the prayers of the righteous, as that section in the Doctrine and Covenants indicated. And that, that he he is he is mediating this 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 process of delivering the prayers of the saints. And remember that doctrine and covenant section referred to the righteous also as the saints and as the servants. So it's his charge, this angel, to take these prayers to the golden altar which was before the throne. So there's something really really amazing to me with this imagery that we would kneel as we do when we pray and we might ask what is the what is the the reason for kneeling often before empty space for example imagine joseph smith kneeling in a grove of trees he's he's kneeling before empty space and we will kneel on the floor before empty space when we pray sometimes kneel against a bed but When we kneel in that way, we might think of ourselves as actually kneeling before this golden altar which was before the throne. It's just that this golden altar, as it's described in verse 3, is in a remote location. But if we will kneel when we pray as though we are at that golden altar, then I think we have the right idea. And we're finding here that this angel is taking these prayers that we offer to that golden altar. Now something happens in the other direction. This same angel, after delivering these prayers, uh, which do, um, they 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 do come to God. They they do come before Him. They they reach Him. This incense reaches him, as we find in verse 4, just to finish that line of thought. Uh, After they reach God, we find then that the angel goes in the other direction. From the presence of God, he sends something back down to the earth after we had sent our prayers up to him. In this case, in verse 5, it looks like something destructive and undesirable. But just notice what's happening. The angel took the censer in verse 5. He filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. So generally speaking, that shows that this same mediating angel, which I, I think is figurative. Again, our mediator, as we pray, is, is the son himself. But this mediating angel, angel is sending something back down from the presence of God. To the earth. Well, in this case, that this is the answer that the saints had um, prayed for, and this answer was the fire of the altar, and uh, and then, uh, so now the silence is about to end, because we read that once the angel had done this, there were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and an earthquake. There's similar language actually in Revelation chapter 4, I believe it is, when John is introduced to the presence of the Lord and patterns of color emanate from his throne, and then also sounds and noises emanate from his throne, and similar language is used. So now we're finding that the heavens are being rent, as that scripture said, and these noises... That emanate from the throne of God are coming down to earth. It's the power and the sounds uh, that, that are embodied by these sounds, then, that are coming down to the earth um, uh, through the fire of the altar. Uh, Bruce R. McConkey called them hot coals. He said that the hot coals taken from the altar and cast down to earth symbolize the judgments of God to be rained down upon the wicked during the opening part of the seventh seal. Okay, so this entire sequence of events where seven angels are standing before God, as it says in verse two, and there be given seven trumpets, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and then this other angel which receives the prayers of the righteous, and then answers their prayers, all of this is happening during this latent, silent period, and now the silence is broken by the sound of these trumpets. So these seven angels, why trumpets? Uh, the Lord's voice is described as the sound of a trumpet in John's initial vision of him in Revelation chapter 1. So we we can imagine that that, that would be because the, the trumpet has a powerful sound, and Unlike some other instruments, it penetrates, and it, and it has a glorious sound that it transmits. Uh, if you know me personally, you might know my bias in that regard. But there's another thing to think about with the blast of a trumpet. If you think about it scripturally, you you can think about what accompanies the blast of a trumpet in battle. It, there is a terrible, foreboding association with this sound. It's a signaling sound. And it means that you're about to be met by military might. You are about to be met with overwhelming destructive force. And when you hear the sound of that trumpet, you know that that force is coming towards you and it is about to be unleashed. So I think that is probably the image then, and the understanding that should be conveyed from the image of these seven angels being given seven trumpets. For some, uh, maybe we could say, cross-scriptural context before moving into this sequence where these angels sound their trumpets, we can read this passage in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is uh, verses 87 through 92. For not many days hence, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man. And the sun shall hide his face and shall refuse to give light. And the moon shall be bathed in blood and the stars shall become exceedingly angry and shall cast themselves down as a fig that falleth off from off a fig tree. There's a lot we could say about that imagery and how it relates to other scriptures about the last days. And after your testimony cometh, wrath and indignation upon the people. For after your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes that shall cause groanings in the midst of her, and men shall fall upon the ground and shall not be able to stand. And also cometh the testimony of the voice of thunderings, and the voice of lightnings, and the voice of tempests, and the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. So think again of these, these noises that emanate from the power and glory. And in this case, there's, there's, there's an element of retribution to it. Uh, that's coming from the throne of God. Then verses 91 and 92. And all things shall be in commotion. And surely men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people. And angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, sounding the trump of God, saying, Prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God is come. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. So in this verse, there there's kind of a synthesis of uh, a whole number of scriptural uh, expressions from throughout the standard works where, 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 where these last times are described uh, with different images and ending here, of course, with the bridegroom coming. I want to focus on this phrase for just a moment in verse 91 about all things being in commotion because we're reading here about a sequence of seven angels who sound their trumpets and and it makes us wonder then if if it's actually going to happen in sequence or is that just the way it's laid out in the text in a in a linear fashion so that we can read about each of these seven angels individually well it's probably the latter when we think about all of these things being in commotion it's probably more plausible that all of these uh, seven sequential events or periods are happening simultaneously. So with that in mind, here is verse six, the silence has been broken and the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the first angel. It says in verse seven sounded, and there's that terrible sound and there followed Hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up this hail and this fire that's mingled with blood blood uh, almost seems like an association uh, of of the of the altar that was just mentioned where something is being thrown down from heaven, where, where the force and the power and the might and the glory of God is coming down in a spirit of retribution and, and actually burning up part of the trees and all green grass, and that, that indicates life. There are three things I want to say before progressing farther into this. The first is that the first four of these seven angels levy plagues that can be thought of as one one phase of this, and then the next phase uh, starts in chapter 9, and there's a transition statement in verse 13 of this chapter that that shows us the second phase of these uh, trumpet-playing angels coming, and I don't mean to be too flippant about that. The second thing I'd like to point out is the fraction that we see over and over here, which is the third we see it in verse 7 we see it in verse 8 we see it in verse 10 11 12 it appears three times in the verse 12 the third the third part uh, and then the the third thing i'd like to to, to point out is is the, the parallel between these plagues and those that occurred during Moses's time when the children of Israel were captive in Egypt so first This fraction of a third. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, for example, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, A third part of thee shall die with the pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee. And a third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Zechariah has a similar expression in chapter 13. Uh, I just want to add that it's not to be missed that in Zechariah chapter 13 we have this expression in verse 6, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That just amazes me that that is couched inside of this chapter. Okay, back to this idea of one third. This is Zechariah chapter 13 verses 8 through 9. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God." With those Old Testament examples in mind, and then, of course, with, uh, with Revelation chapter 8 in mind, and, and I would add that we do learn that a third of the hosts of heaven were cast down. We're, we're coming up against something that um, has been called remnant theology, and I, and I want to read this uh, passage from Richard Draper's book. He says, the trumpet blasts are not designed to destroy the earth. They affect a significant proportion, but not all. Some 12 times, the seer limits the destruction to one-third, symbolically showing that their bounds have been set. They can go only so far. The fraction one-third is used by a number of the prophets in association with what is called remnant theology. The remnant being the unaffected part, this is suggesting purpose to us. Really, telling us that in his ire, God is not destroying the whole world, and the spirit of retribution that seems to be behind his ire might might be a misreading of his intent. Uh, really, what he is doing is 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 compelling those to be humble. You might say. That aren't yet there, and creating one last attempt for man to return to God before it's too late. When it's thought of in this spirit, it's it's similar to what I referenced in the previous chapter, uh, when the servant in the vineyard in Jacob chapter five pleads uh, w- with the Lord of the vineyard that, that there could just be one last attempt to to gather good fruit now to my third discussion point here which is that these plagues uh, have something uh, in common with the the plagues that were that, that were um, unleashed against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh the destruction that's taking place here with the first angel and the first blast of the trumpet is uh, Is again that things that are verdant, trees, and all green grass is burnt up. And that again is the consequence of of something being unleashed from heaven, fire coming from heaven. Exodus uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 25 discuss a similar plague that came against the Egyptians. It says, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail. So think of the relationship between a very grievous hail and what is being rained down from heaven here in Revelation. "...such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field, for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses." And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt upon man and upon beast and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And there again, that's similar language. This hail is killing every green thing that it touches and everything that's fed by every green thing. Verse 23, And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire and ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So we can see here just from this text that, that hail implies more than the the white uh, the white orbs that, that that fall from clouds that we know of. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field break every tree so all of that is to say that that's very similar language and a similar plague now we move to verse 8 and the second angel sounds and then as the verse says and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea so now we're talking about the sea and the third part of the sea became blood And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. So it seems like a similar effect, except it's happening on the water. However, not only are things being destroyed as they were uh, when the first angel sounded, but the medium that's being discussed, the medium was the earth and things verdant upon the earth, with the first angel, but with the second angel, the medium is the sea, and it becomes blood. Well, we know what that would be an allusion to, or perhaps the uh, the thing that happened in Egypt was an allusion to this. That's probably more accurate. Exodus chapter seven, verses twenty through twenty-one say, "And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh." and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in verse 10 it says, And the third angel sounded. And there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made uh, made bitter. Uh, if we simply equate Wormwood with poison, we have the right idea. This is a plant, Wormwood, uh I have to say, it's also a, 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 an apprentice devil in, in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, uh, which is a, a fun and interesting association here. Uh, but the Greek word underneath this is absinthe, and that's a plant that was used to make an alcoholic beverage. That's still the case today. And uh, that's just a very bitter plant and maybe had some medicinal properties. Uh, but uh, more to the point here, um, uh, the idea of something being poisoned is is the same in Greek as it being bitter. So we're talking about the water becoming poisoned. There's also some symbolism here with the use of the word wormwood and its association with a star that has fallen from heaven. As it says in verse 10, a great star, no less, that falls from heaven and that, that might be a way of symbolizing then the the, the the, devil himself and those who follow him and the poison that enters their souls as they do so. So that's very thought provoking. We get now to verse 12, which is the third, or excuse me, the fourth plague that is being levied by the fourth angel. It says, and the fourth angel sounded and the third part of the sun was smitten And the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So, the consequence of the previous plague was poisoned water. The consequence of the plague before that was death in the sea. The consequence of the plague before that was death on the land. Here we have darkness as the consequence of this plague. This might bring to mind the darkness that preceded the uh, arrival of the Savior himself in 3 Nephi. Uh, This then might help us to understand why Amos, for example, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, said that the Lord's day will be a day of darkness and not of light. Why would the Prophets say that? Well, he's referring then to that intense darkness that would precede the coming of the Lord. That's what happened in 3rd Nephi. And if you think about it, that's what happened immediately prior to the appearance of the Father and the Son to Joseph Smith as well. So that's also what's happening here at the opening of the seventh seal. There is a period of terrible darkness. The prophet Joel associated the word gloominess with darkness, giving us an idea that this darkness had a spiritual quality to it, and not simply just a um, a, a lack of, of 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 light in the in the most uh, strict temporal sense. Joel said, "It will be a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness." And that's out of Joel chapter two, verse two. Then we had the Savior himself in speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, saying that, quote, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. And that's in Mark thirteen, uh, verse twenty-four. Isaiah painted a similar picture in Isaiah chapter thirteen, verse twelve, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. This completes our our introduction to the first four of the seven angels that are given to us then in Revelation chapter 8. The final verse of this chapter uh, helps us to transition into Revelation chapter 9 where we will encounter the fifth angel. Verse 13 says, And I behold and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. So this is a different angel, and in fact, the Greek word that's translated to angel in this verse is actually the word A-E-T-O-S, and that is more accurately translated to an eagle, or a vulture, or a bird of prey. So it can also be read that way, that a bird of prey is flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. To the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So that is John once again setting up our anticipation for what is to come as these angels are yet to sound. Before ending this segment, I want to quickly look at these three words in verse 13. Woe, woe, woe all separated by a comma. There, there's some meaning to that. In these verses, in uh, Revelation chapter 8 then, we've, we've been shown uh, woes that would befall mankind before the second coming. That's what we've been talking about here. And then this ministrant, whether it's a true angel or some sort of a bird of prey, it's symbolic of course, Uh pronounces three more woes. So these are three more woes which are to come. Instead of simply looking at these three woes being put together in this sentence as a point of emphasis, Bruce R. McConkie suggested that there are three additional and specific woes that will follow what we have just read in Revelation chapter 8. So I want to read his quote here. After showing John the woes that would befall mankind before the second coming, and that's what we've just covered, the Lord by an angelic ministrant promised three more woes which were to attend and usher in the reign of the great king. The first of these was the unbelievably destructive series of wars leading up to the final great holocaust. That's what we'll read in Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. The second woe is the final great war itself in which one-third of the host of men should be slain. And that is shown in, in Revelation chapter 9, the, the latter half, and in Revelation chapter 10 and the front half of Revelation chapter 11 prior to the seventh angel sounding his trumpet. And now the third woe is to be the destruction of the remainder of the wicked when the vineyard is burned by divine power And the earth changes from its telestial to its terrestrial state. So that's what is to come. And that brings us then to the end of Revelation chapter 8.